The words that I would like to read at the beginning of my sermon are found in Philippians 1.3. You may not know where these words are, but you know these words. In that verse, Paul said to the Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. These familiar words of Paul are used commonly in greetings Christians issue to one another and especially to those for whom they feel a special fondness. We see them in greeting cards that are printed for Christian use. We see them written in hand at the bottom or in the margins of letters that we send to one another. And when we look at them in the context of this, which is Paul's happiest letter, it's plain that he had wonderful memories of his time with the Christians in the city of Philippi, as their lives were enriched by his ministry among them, so his life was enriched by his fellowship with them. As he wrote to them, so each could have written to him, I thank God on every remembrance of you. Philippians was written at a time of dark uncertainty in Paul's life. He was in prison, quite possibly facing the legal proceedings that would result in the end of his life. And so far as Paul knew when he wrote these words, his ministry in and to the church of Jesus Christ was at an end. And it was for him a time of quiet reflection, one of euphoria as he counted his many blessings and quite possibly a time of melancholy as he contemplated the probable time in which the greatest of those blessings would be seen in the past. This is our penultimate Sunday together. In one week, the baton will pass, and a marvelously pleasant time in my life will come to an end. I find myself lost in thoughtful reverie, remembering times and people that are no more and grateful for friendships that have lasting value. It is for me, for my wife, for our family, and for many of you, a time of euphoria as we remember the ways that God has worked among us and a time of melancholy as we anticipate its end. The sadness that we feel represents the satisfactions that we've known in the grace of God. It certainly has not been a perfect time. I am far from perfect. Some of you fall a little short of perfection. But it's a time in which, in the mercy of God, we have found the grace to overlook one another's imperfections in order that we might know God and worship God and serve God more perfectly. In fact, I believe that tolerance of this sort has in the past been one of the great strengths of this church. It's been a time in which we've grown together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if this time were a person, then many of us could write to that person and say, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Preachers have different philosophies and values. It isn't necessarily true that any one of them is the standard by which all others should be judged. But one of my personal convictions is that a preacher shouldn't spend very much time talking about himself. The men that I've heard and read and for whom I have the greatest respect are those who virtually never mention their families or their hobbies or their health or their travels. 
They don't fill their sermons with stories about arguments they've won or the great counsel that they've given. And they don't address the lofty truths of our faith as if their personal understanding or application of those truths in any way enhance their value to the church as a whole. The purpose of preaching is not to enrich a congregation's fondness for their pastor, but for their God. The goal is not to win sympathy or devotion or respect for the man in the pulpit, but for the man on the cross, now risen from the dead and sitting at the right hand of God the Father in everlasting glory. I don't remember ever saying any of these things to you, but if I did, I hoped that you admired me for saying them. (laughs) But having said them, I hope that you'll now forgive the transgression of this conviction most of the rest of this sermon represents, because on this particular Sunday, I'd like to talk with you about me, or at least some of my most significant memories. Two of those significant memories have to do with geography. My first visit to this church in its former location was on a weekday. I knew that Calvary was one of several churches in our old presbytery looking for pastors. Carla and I had driven up from Chicago and spent the night with family. And it was my intention to visit each one of these churches to look at the community and to learn as much as I could about each. And my first stop was Calvary because it was the closest. I walked around the building. I pulled a bulletin out of the trash, wiped the coffee grounds out of it. Then I found a, a cafe nearby and I stopped for a cup of coffee only to find out that the waitress didn't even know anything about Calvary Presbyterian Church. But my next step was the Presbyterian Church in Vassar. I had all day, I had a road map with me, I wasn't in a hurry. But I drove east on Richfield Road, having left Calvary, and I came to Vassar Road. And I said, Polk, this is your lucky day. (laughs) You who know the area know why you're laughing, don't you? Vassar Road eventually ends up in Vassar, but after several jogs and breaks along the way. Another lesson in geography comes from my first Sunday in the church. That Sunday after worship, one of the women of the church told me that another lady named Ella Abraham, whom some of you might remember, was in Hurley Hospital, that she'd just been diagnosed with cancer. And I was told about this in a way that said something like, if you want to keep your job here, you'd better get up to see her. So I thought I'd better get up to see her. My problem was I knew how to get to Hurley Hospital from the Durand area where I had a church earlier. I didn't have a clue as to how to get there from Davison where we lived. And so I got on the expressway, went all the way across town to Miller Road and came to Hurley Hospital, only later to realize how many miles out of my way that I went. And it's interesting how little things stick in your mind. We all have things like this. I don't remember the room number that any of you were in when you were in the hospital. I don't remember the room number that I was in when I was at Hurley. But I still remember to this day that Ella Abraham was in room 953. It's interesting how things stick with us and how others don't. Over the years that we've been together, there have been some changes introduced to the life of the church at my suggestion. One of the first of these relates to the way in which the offering plates were brought forward at the end of worship. In our old church, the chancel was like this, but not like this. 
It was a deep alcove at the front of the sanctuary. On either side were two pews facing two pews in which the choir sat. And at the back of the the, uh, uh, chancel was a communion table. There was a purple curtain hanging behind it. And it looked like an altar rather than a communion table. And the practice in the church, some of you who were there, there, here, there, were there then, <laughs> will remember if you were paying attention in that after the offering plates had passed among the congregation and the ushers came forward, the pastor would meet them at the top steps to the Holy of Holies. And he would take the plates and then, and then he would turn around and approach that altar, lay the plates on the altar and offer a prayer of thanksgiving, not facing the congregation, but facing the wall or the altar. I don't mean to be critical of any man, but I didn't like that practice. I came to the church strongly convinced that the doctrine of the priesthood of believers is one of the most important that we celebrate as Protestants and one of the most neglected. And I still believe that. And so at my suggestion, we changed the practice. And from early on, the ushers themselves carried the gifts of the people of God to the piece of furniture at the front of the church and laid them on there as a part of our corporate worship. Other changes were the beginning of the annual church capping event and the heritage banquet, placing Bibles in the pew and having a unison scripture reading as a part of worship, the recognition of wedding anniversaries and the birthdays of children of the covenant, creating veteran members Sunday and using elders in worship. And at my suggestion, we started using baptized children of the church as acolytes. Many of you don't know how that started. It might interest you to know that the idea to use the children with robes to light the candles at the beginning of worship came one Sunday when I noticed that one of the older men of the church who was acting as an usher that Sunday at the beginning of worship came up to light the candles. He reached in his pocket and finally found the right one and he pulled out what looked like a bick. And several times he went like this and finally got it going and lighted the candles. And watching this, I thought, I'll bet there's a better way to do this. <laughs> and that's where the idea of recognizing the importance of our baptized children and getting the candles lighted in a little more dignified manner came from. You might be interested in knowing. Some of my memories relate to the time in which we were engaged in building this part of this building. I have wonderful memories of the excellent job that Dick Heitman did as chairman of that building committee. The people on the committee had different backgrounds, different experiences, very different personalities. And yet Dick somehow managed to put all of that together. So the process went very efficiently and very peacefully. A particularly satisfying aspect of the work of the building committee for me was choosing and designing the symbols that go in the windows of the sanctuary. And a particularly frustrating memory is the fact that, you know, right out here we have a room that we call the cry room. That's where a mother that may have a crying child or husband can go during the worship service. (laughs) And seriously, I wanted that to be called the ballroom. (laughs) And I couldn't sell it. And the pain is beginning to heal. It's not completely gone, but it's beginning to heal. But in spite of hinting, for years and years, I never did get that hot tub from my, bre- my office that I wanted. <laughs> Some of my memories, I think, are funny. 
One of them comes from a time when we first began to record worship services for shut-ins. We used cassette, remember cassettes? And uh, I went home one Sunday afternoon to take a nap, and uh, I had a cassette, and I thought, I should listen to this to see what the quality of the recording is. And so I, I put it in the tape recorder by my bed, and I pushed play, and we played through the first half of the service, and I was still wide awake. And so I got up and flipped the cassette over and pushed play and lay down on the sermon started and went sound asleep. <laughs> and that's the origin of that announcement we put in the bulletin every once in a while. Insomniacs Anonymous is pleased to announce available of tapes and discs of my sermons. And the other one has to do with the time when I made a hospital call. I went to St. Joseph Hospital. And some of you may remember that I used to ride a motorcycle. In fact, I have an idea that selling that motorcycle was the biggest mistake in my life. And young pastors who might be here, I'd advise you to get a motorcycle. Because they said in, in seminary that, that a congregation will probably watch you very closely, finding something to talk about and to criticize. And I thought, well, if I park it right out in front, it'll make an end of the search. And then I sold the motorcycle, so here we are. But I rode my motorcycle to St. Joseph Hospital once, and I noticed a fellow in a pickup truck followed me into the parking lot. I parked my bike, put my helmet on my seat. I was going in, and I heard someone almost jogging to catch up with me, and it was the man in the pickup. And you want to know about my motorcycle. What kind is it? What size engine does it have? And it turns out that he's a motorcyclist. In fact, he was coming to visit his wife in the hospital because they had been riding their motorcycles together. They came to an off-ramp on the expressway, and she somehow lost control of hers and rolled over and went off the road. And this is a true story. I asked him, oh, wow, how bad was it? And he said, oh, not bad. She bent the fork. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 your wife. And he said, oh, she broke her arm, but she'll be all right. <laughs> Some of my most satisfying memories as a pastor are of those times when God blessed me by being in the right place at the right time. You know, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We understand that we are always in the right place at the right time. But because we see through a glass darkly, most of the time we aren't aware of that. But there are times when we are, times when that awareness is just unavoidable. And one of those comes from my first church. In the town, there was a, a very poor uh, woman who lived with her mother, and her mother died. And they lived in virtual squalor. And some friends from the Methodist church in town kind of took her under their wing, and I'm sure with her permission, they went into the house and they began to clean things up. And there were stacks of newspapers all over this house. And so they began to carry them to a trash burner out in the backyard and burn them. We used to be able to do that. Remember that? Leaves, newspapers, and that sort of thing. And when one of them was carrying some of these newspapers out and threw it in the fire, something fell out of one of the newspapers, and it was a 5 or $10 bill. And they went through some of the other papers, and almost every one of them, they found money. Then, of course, they wondered how much money they'd burned trying to clean up this house. But when they counted it all, they had enough money to make some major improvements in this house, including bringing electricity to it for the first time. That... That Christmas, my first Christmas in the ministry, I wrote a Christmas letter, and I decided instead of paying for the stamps, I would hand deliver it to as many people as I could. So I walked all over town with these Christmas letters, and I came to her house, and she came to the door, 
And her first words were, oh, I was hoping someone would come by, look. And she flicked a switch and her lights came on. And I was so grateful that God let me be the person who rang her doorbell on that occasion. Another one of these, a lady who used to live in that town and transferred her membership to this church. I, uh, I happened to follow on the expressway. I was going west on 69. I came to the interchange at M13 at Lennon. And I saw a familiar car coming onto the expressway in front of me. And it was this lady. And I didn't want to honk or to surprise her or anything. And I slowed down and just followed her without her knowing it. And within half a mile or so, one of her tires blew, and her car fishtailed and then went head-on into the guardrail. She was all right, but she was so surprised to see the familiar face of her pastor. Several people stopped, but she didn't know any of them. But the Lord put me there just at the right time, and I'm so grateful for that, because I think perhaps having a familiar face there made a little bit of difference to her in her distress. At another time like that, I called on a lady in the hospital. When I walked into her room, she was by herself, sitting on the edge of her bed and crying. And a doctor whose mind was obviously much better trained than his heart had just left, having told her that she has cancer, there's nothing that they could do for her, sorry, and he walked out of the room, leaving her devastated. It was my good fortune to just have a prayer and a hug with me when I walked into the room. And I'm so thankful to God for moments like that. We've all had times like that. I just have the privilege of talking about them this morning. But we're all very, very thankful for them. In the 40 years that you and I have been together, I baptized our three children and nine grandchildren and a whole bunch of yours as well. I married our children and several of yours. In fact, the calendar has turned over so many times that I'm now having the privilege of baptizing babies born to babies that I baptized. And I'm very grateful for that. But as a pastor, my most important memories come from knowing that there are men and women and young people, whether they're still in this church or not, who have found the joy of believing and knowing that Jesus died for their sins and that the level of personal interest in the scriptures is higher today than it once was. My satisfaction doesn't come so much from the fact that Bible questions have been answered as it does from the reality that curiosity about the scriptures, the desire to read and understand them has increased over the years. Some of my memories are very personal. They have almost no value to anyone else. One of them has for its setting Dallas, Texas. And I, I may have told you this before. If I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry. But it comes from a time when I thought that God was leading me away from this church. And one of the churches that I discovered was looking for a pastor was a PCA church in Dallas. And we were sufficiently interested in one another for them to fly Carl and me to Dallas, where I met with their search committee, and we attended a worship service, and I preached, and later they extended a call to me. And while we were there on that Sunday morning, we attended one of their adult Sunday school classes. Didn't teach it, just attended it. As I remember, they had three or four adult Sunday school classes, and we chose one purely arbitrarily. In that classroom, there were four walls, as you might imagine. So those of you who understand math enough to figure odds, there's four classes and four walls in each classroom. 
and we chose one arbitrarily and chose seats arbitrarily. But on the wall, opposite where I was sitting in that classroom, there were nature pictures that had words of scripture superimposed on them. The scenes were not identified, but there were waterfalls and birds and trees. If you know me very well, you've heard me talk about, I hope not in sermons after what I said earlier, my love for boating. And my favorite place to boat is the Straits of Mackinac. St. Agnes, Mackinac City, the bridge, Mackinac Island, the Lachenau Islands. Just love the water up there. And one of my favorite scenes is on the backside of Mackinac Island that you don't see from the mainland on either side. That's a rock formation called Arch Rock. Many of you have seen it. I'm sitting there in a Sunday school classroom in Dallas, Texas. And there opposite me is a picture of Arch Rock on Mackinac Island. And it was such a sweet, subtle way for God to say to me, you don't want to be here. And I'm so grateful for that. Another of these very personal memories comes from February of 1997. You don't hear me talk much about personal things, but for some reason, as I was preparing the sermon for that Sunday, I felt this undeniable compulsion to talk about my father. My father was a man that I had learned to love and respect much more in the last decade of his life or so than I did in the first 70 years, and I'm so grateful for that decade. I said a few things about my father in that service. I walked to the end of the aisle where my wife was waiting for me and said that uh, during the night my father had died. And he wanted no service, nothing done at all, so what I said about him that morning was the closest to a eulogy that anybody offered, and I regard that as an evidence of the sweet grace of God in my life. And finally, one of those personal memories that has something to do with you comes from April of 2001. I had just had major surgery and was recovering from it, and my mother passed away. We buried her here, and uh, when we scheduled things at the funeral home, I went with great effort to the funeral home and expected to sit through maybe 20 minutes, just making a polite, necessary appearance, and then go home. But many of you were there, and you picked me up and carried me through the next four or five hours. You know, we all know how much the fellowship of Christian people means, but sometimes we have the opportunity to be on the receiving end of the ministry of Christian friendship, and it heightens its values to us, and we delight in that. These are a, a handful of memories. They have more to do with me than they do with you. I hope you find something useful in them. I appreciate your tolerance in listening to them. I assure you that in the future, when I think about the times that we have shared together, my thoughts will be, I thank God, on every remembrance of you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for memories. And we thank you for the delightful property in us that allows us to sort through those memories so that the ones that we cherish the most are those that bring joy to us, cause us to praise you for evidences of your many undeserved kindnesses to us. We thank you for all the times we've shared, 
We thank you for tomorrow because we know that you wait for us there. And we thank you for the absolute confidence that Jesus is coming. And there's a time when we will sing forever around the throne. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.